Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. My business card says Bill Arnold, host of the afternoon show, so I most certainly must be in the right place today. I have a pas- uh, passage from Ephesians chapter 1 to start this beautiful Friday. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but in the one to come. I love that passage. So on my wish list uh, was to have Carolyn Custis James return to the show. She's an award-winning author who has done some serious deep thinking about what it means to be a a female follower of Jesus in a postmodern world. She's a cancer survivor and also an award-winning author who's done some serious deep thinking about uh, uh, what it is that she's grateful for. And she wants to be absolutely determined to address the issues in life that matter most. So I'm very grateful for that. She's written some amazing books. Uh, She wrote a book called Finding God in the Margins, the book of Ruth. Also, The Lost Women of the Bible, The Women We Thought We Knew, and When Life and Beliefs Collide, and Maelstrom, Manhood Swept into the Currents of a Changing World. That was Christianity, Christianity Today 2016 Book of the Year. So... Her latest book is entitled Why I Love Being on Afternoons with Bill Arnold, and she is here today to discuss that project. Carolyn, welcome. That sounds like a good title. (laughs) I agree, and it's kind of ambitious, but I'm glad you're taking it on, so thank you for doing that. Yeah, well, I'm always open to new ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that you're working really on a new book about uh, the... Uh, Me Too stories of the Bible. I'm fascinated to hear about that and would love to uh, talk a little bit about that and a little bit about Maelstrom, uh, the book that was uh, such a big hit for you. Okay. Well, um, we all know that in 2017, with the um, investigation into Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein, that um, there was unleashed on Twitter the Me Too, hashtag Me Too Twitter storm, where women and men were acknowledging the fact that they had been sexually abused. Mm-hmm. And what followed from that was the church, the hashtag Church to Twitter storm. And um, it was easy up to that point for Protestants to think that the clergy abuse problems and all were um, Roman Catholic problem. But it turns out that we have a bigger problem in the Protestant church. 
um, the numbers are higher and it keeps happening. We keep having some of the most beloved, revered uh, Christian leaders um, have been exposed as per- perpetrators of sexual abuse against women and children. And it's uh, really unleashed a battle to deal with that. And, you know, I come at that from a lot of different angles, but one of the things that it stirred in me, um, uh, you mentioned that I've written books about the, the Old Testament book of Ruth, and I've written actually two books on the book of Ruth, and I still, current events and just um, different things that I'm learning expose new truth in that book and I could write a third book right now about the book of Ruth and one of the one of the subjects would be the me too story that didn't happen because you have in the book of Ruth and we've romanticized it turned it into Cinderella but it's not Cinderella and um it's a very dangerous thing that Ruth does when she goes at night to the threshing floor to Boaz. And, and you know, both Boaz and Ruth, um, Naomi, both Boaz and Naomi mention in the book of Ruth that there is a danger to Ruth, even when she's gleaning. I mean, he has to tell his men not to touch her. And Naomi says, you know, go back to his field because you'll be safe there. Someone else, in someone else's field, you could be harmed. And, um, you know, the vulnerability of a, of a lone woman, and she goes by herself in the dark to Boaz. And that's where Me Too stories can happen. When a young woman is not around other people who can protect her, and you've got a very powerful man, and nobody's looking, except Boaz isn't any kind of man. And he knows he's being watched. And that changes what he does and the way he treats her. And, you know, we need those kinds of stories because the Bible is full of the other kind. And... um and that's what I'm looking at in my in my current research for this next project. That sounds fascinating, Carolyn. I'd I'd love to hear some more examples if if you're ready to to discuss that. They're all they're all over in the Bible, and we do the same thing in these Me Too stories and how we teach them um, that we do when somebody steps forward with allegations against somebody we think is important. So you have the story of Hagar. Hagar was a slave girl. Most of the stories or many of the stories of women in the Bible where Me Too stories happen are are young because puberty is um, what signals marriageability in a a girl within a full-fledged patriarchal culture. So, you know, when Sarah takes Hagar and says to Abraham, let's have a child through her. This is not consensual sex. (laughs) 
And, you know, she ends up having to run for her life because Sarah abuses her. Um, like, but God pursues her. And he gives her a message. She has a prophetic message to take back to Abraham about the child she's carrying. But it's a Me Too story, and we don't look at Hagar. We sort of, you know, just talk about Abraham and Sarah and, you know, the struggle that they're in. But we don't talk about Hagar. And the thing is, these stories can help us, you know, by opening our eyes. These are, these can be things that, that, men we admire do you know you have king david and you know what we do with that with his story with bathsheba is we blame bathsheba you know it's the what were you wearing or what were you doing or did you want this um and she's again probably a very young girl she didn't have any choice when the king sent his men to get her um you have the story of esther who was a young girl who is rounded up with other young virgins and taken to the king so he can try them out and decide who he wants to be his queen. You know, you have in the patriarchal world a lot of danger for women because men are the ones who hold power. And that's why I love Boaz, because he's very powerful, and he uses his power to empower Ruth so that she can do for her mother-in-law what needs to be done. You know, so it's not like we talk about male power as as a negative thing, but power is a gift, and it can be used in incredible kingdom ways and it's not something a man can shed you know you can't not be a man you know you're you you have privileges that come with that but those privileges are trusts that can be used to bless and cause the flourishing of others I mean, Boaz does it over and over and over again. Jesus does that with people he encounters. Um, you know, he doesn't dominate them. He he blesses them. He he sees them, people that are being shoved aside. Um, and I just think there's a whole new, well, for all of us, a whole new gospel way of living that we just need to keep reaching for, um, that we we haven't arrived, that there's more to this than, than we've grasped. And, I, you know, for me, the, the Me Too pandemic, which is global, um, has just opened my eyes to, a, you know, deeper damage that sin has done in human lives and how God, even, you know, somebody who has been so abused has a purpose in what he's doing in the world. You know, somebody like Hagar who's been, you know, abused and thrown out and God gives her a message. You know, she becomes 
his messenger. Mm. And, and he did it over and over and over again. Ruth was a nobody in her culture. She was she was an an undocumented immigrant. She was certifiably barren. No man in his right mind would want her for his wife because men needed to be producing male heirs for the family to survive another generation. She was poor. She's scavenging to survive. And she is God's point person for what he's doing to advance his purposes in that moment in time. And it's, you know, it's, it's in a barley field. It's not in, you know, the tabernacle or the temple and she doesn't become a prophetess or, you know, but she just, what she's doing to take care of Naomi are advancing God's purposes for the world. And she, she never knew that, you know, it just, for me, it just says every life matters and we don't know where God is doing the big things in his world today. And it could be a little child somewhere or somebody who's just lost their job and are afraid they're going to get evicted. It's God is subversive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Boy, you're reminding me, Carolyn, how important it is to be studying, meditating, and dwelling on the word of God, because this is when you get into the word that you start to, uh, feel and understand the whole scope of the passage. Yeah, some really wonderful well, I, thinking on this. And I and I think that current events, whether they're in your own private life or in the wider national or global life, um, raise new questions and should take us back to Scripture to say, mm-hmm. "Is there is there anything here that will help us with this?" And my goodness, the uh, the things that, you know, I've begun to see because of Me Too and Church Too are earth-shaking. Mm-hmm. I've got some questions about some of the characters in the Bible and also some of the, the Me Too in the church. After the break, we'll come back with more with Carolyn Custis-James. She's authored many books, and we will be back in just a minute. Back with Carolyn Custis James. I had almost forgotten, Carolyn. You, you had written two books on the Book of Ruth, and mm. the way I, the way I timed out my show today is I do a segment uh, semi regularly called Fridays with Friends, and the friend I'm having on today memorized the whole Book of Ruth, and then he wrote about oh. a 54 page analysis of it. So, if you still want to tune in at 5:30 tonight, you can hear that. So. Mm. So let's get back to uh, some of the characters in the Bible, some of the people. You know, when I think of King David, he probably, with his uh, palatial mansion, was the only one in town that had multi-levels. So he could be up higher looking down over other other homes, and that gave him, gave him an opportunity to see Bathsheba uh, taking her bath and then ordering her to come to the palace. And it doesn't seem like she had much choice when it came to being intimate with uh, King David. No, I, you know, and I think we've 
I mean, she's, again, this is what happens when somebody comes forward with an, with allegations that somebody has sexually abused them, that, you know, well, what were you, what were you doing? And it seems, you know, scholars think that what she was doing with this uh, ceremonial cleansing um, as a woman um, that would mean the timing of this episode would lead to a pregnancy. Um, and not that she was parading herself. Um, but again, you know, she was, she was very young. If she hadn't, you know, never, if she, she was married, but she didn't, she didn't have any children. So the the thought is that she would have been pretty a young, what, fourteen year old, something like mm-hmm. that. So, so Carolina, sheds, oh, go ahead, please. Yeah. No, it just sheds a different light um, on the on the story. You know, one of the things that has helped me in understanding the stories of the Bible is to realize. Um, that that it isn't an American book, that we are foreigners to the world of the Bible, and that, um, and this is getting into what I wrote in Maelstrom, but that, you know, we've said because patriarchy is on every page of the Bible, that that's the Bible's message, uh, you know, a kinder, gentler, not exactly like what they were you know, holding to in in that period of time. But I've come to the conclusion that patriarchy is not the Bible's message, that it's the backdrop to the Bible's message. And when you put that backdrop in place, when you start to understand more about patriarchal cultures and there many of those kinds of cultures that are you know, uh, intensely patriarchy in today's world, Um, the power of the gospel and the message of the Bible just leaps off the page. And um, one of the examples that I use often is the story of Mary of Bethany, who sits at the feet of Rabbi Jesus, and he teaches her, and her sister wants her to help and you know, preparing the meal for all these men. And Jesus defends Mary, and he really appeals for Martha to join her sister. And, you know, when we hear sermons on that text, it's really hard for Western preachers to make something out of it. You know, like you need to have your quiet time or you're too busy (laughs) kinds of stuff. But, you know, if you took that story to Pakistan where little girls have acid thrown in their faces when they go to school and when they turn eight, they're not supposed to go anymore. They would love Jesus. It would be completely for him to advocate for Mary to learn right along with his male disciples. You know, and so it's it's very powerful when you put that backdrop behind the story instead of – there was one Old Testament scholar who said when we read the Bible, we need to foreignize it. Hmm. 
And so smart. I find that that yeah, yeah. But I think it's very helpful, you know. I mean, the Bible was written about a culture a long time ago, mm-hmm. and you know, we're about as far away from that world as you can get today. Yeah, we need to obviously see see it through Middle Eastern eyes as best we can. Yeah, yeah, and there Caroline. and there are lots of stories that help too. Oh, absolutely. Now, we've got only a couple minutes before we go to our hard break, so I'd, I'd love maybe another illustration uh, of of a, a, a woman in Scripture that I know you've got for me. Um, well, one of the things that I did in Maelstrom is studying women in the Bible that we've sort of neglected um, led me to men that get overlooked, and my faith favorite story in the book of Genesis is the story of Tamar and Judah and the collision between the two of them when um, Tamar gets pregnant with twins is to replace her two dead husbands but it's the turning point in Judah's story he goes from someone who is ready to kill his brother who traffics his brother into Egypt who leaves his family and goes into Canaanite territory. And his collision with Tamar is a turning point in the in Genesis. And the next time when he goes and he's in front of Joseph, and Joseph is ready to take Benjamin, the youngest brother, into slave, slavery, Judah, lays down his life for his brother and says, take me instead. I mean, it's a, it's the transformation in that man is incredible. I mean, when you read what he says without even knowing he's talking to Joseph, I weep when I read that text, but it's like God got a hold of him and there's a different brand of, masculinity that comes out of him that is sacrificial and that is full of love for his brother and his father. And, you know, in the face of Joseph, who's got all this power over them. But, all, you know, there are just many stories in the Bible like that where, where the a gospel brand of masculinity breaks through and is there just breathtaking moments. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can talk about that, Carolyn, after the break. We can talk about your book, Maelstrom. That would be wonderful. Carolyn Custis James is my guest. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back.
back with Carolyn Custis James. She's an award-winning author, written several books on the Book of Ruth, and another book she has written is uh, was Christianity's Book of the Year in the hermeneutics category. So we're excited to be having her on the program. Uh, the book is called Maelstrom, Manhood Swept into the Currents. Um, and the book's premise, Carolyn, is that men have lost sight of who God created them to be as human beings and as men. So do say more. Well, every culture has a definition of what it means to be a man. And sometimes it involves going through some pretty torturous um, rituals. And But even in our culture, you know, men hear this, you know, this is what it means to be a man and you need to man up and, um, you know, you need to be in charge and you need to be... Um, you know, manly, what, you know, all the different things that, that, I mean, what happens in the locker room and what do boys hear um, that they need to be. And, um, you know, when Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world, he didn't mean a kinder, gentler way of doing things the world's way. He meant, you know, an, an, an otherworldly way of living that is true to Jesus and true to God's vision in the beginning. And, you know, the, the problem with, with masculinity def, definitions is they lead, you know, in extremes, we end up with, you know, violence. And, you know, when I wrote this book, ISIS was a huge thing. Um, but, what I ended up looking at in the book is is patriarchy, because patriarchy means you have to you have to earn your masculinity. You have to prove you are a man, and that's not how the Bible talks about men. You know, in in Genesis one, it says that men are, men and women are created in the image of God, and there is no higher designation than that. And it comes with heavy responsibility because it God wanted his image bearers to reflect who he is in the world, which means, you know, our first task is to know him so that we can see the world through his eyes and and love what he loves and join his mission in the world. Um, in in every venue, it's not just what we do on Sunday in church or witnessing to a friend, but it's by exploring and developing the earth's resources and going to your job Monday morning. Everything matters when you're representing God with how you live. And it, it comes with responsibility for what happens in God's world that that it's a call to look after things on his behalf you know he's delegating and it's there's so much more packed into it than you know you're you're the highest life form or you're not a plant or animal it 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 means you matter and everything you do matters and that your first call is to know God and to emulate 
what you see in his heart and his love and his compassion and his goodness and the beauty and artistry of his creation, all of these things summon out of men what God has gifted them with. And you don't prove you're a man. You're you're born with this identity and nobody can take it away from you. Even the worst things that can happen to a man don't destroy the fact that he is God's image bearer. In fact, any atrocity against a human being is an affront to Almighty God because they bear his image. And, you know, when I looked at the Bible to find answers for what is God's calling for his daughters and then when I studied the women in the Bible, there were these amazing men in their stories, and they led me to ask the same question for men. And, you know, it, the Bible tells us that we are born with an identity and calling that nothing will destroy or take from us, and um, that Jesus came to restore that. And the stories that I talk about in maelstrom of the men are men that get marginalized when sermons are preached and you know we we just we dismiss them you know like Barak is some kind of wimp because Deborah is the judge and the um, commander-in-chief and he's amazing and you know it's that we look look at these stories through western eyes and with the assumption of the war of the sexes instead of that they, that god meant for his sons and daughters to join forces for his purpose and you know so we skip over joseph the husband of mary and he's awesome he's the cover story in Matthew's gospel. (laughs) And I wanted to tell those stories because we, you know, we'd rather talk about David and Joshua and Daniel, and we miss these other really powerful stories. You know, Carolyn, when I think of Joseph, and I've been noodling this the last six months in my head, where relative to the story of Ruth, where they had to find the Redeemer kin, uh, kings, kinsman for uh, Ruth. That whatever happened to that Redeemer kinsman for Joseph, his family, and Mary? I mean, obviously, we don't learn about that, but that'll be a question. I'll go to the information booth in heaven when I get there. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Because it would. It well, would I'm be... just. I guess I'm assuming at some point. Uh, when Jesus is on the cross and, and saying, you know, John, here is your mother, you know, and, and assigning oh. kind of a care of his mother over to um, John, that we assume Joseph's no longer in the picture. Right, right. And we don't have Kinsner, any information that he died, but we assume that he was not around. Kinsman Redeemer would have to do with land. And the leverage was had to do with you know, pr- producing a son for the the person who died, but Mary had sons. That that's kind of the mystery to me. That J- 
Jesus pointed to John instead of to his brothers, because he was the firstborn, and he he would have responsibility for his mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess but I meant I, the Leverite, not the, not the kinsman redeemer, but the Leverite. Yeah. You know, that was only in a case when, like in in Naomi's family, um, Elimelech didn't his, his two male heirs died, mm-hmm. and so there was no next generation of funds. And, you know, that's what Ruth goes to remedy. And, um, and Boaz gets what she's trying to do, but there it's, there, you know, legal loopholes that have to be addressed, um, in order for him to do that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. And she's taking a, she's taking a huge risk, which is why he just says, you you are a, a woman of valor, and you, this act of he call is the Hebrew word hesed. It's it's the the love God has for His people that we're to have for one another. But it's sacrificial. It's costly. It's voluntary. Nobody has a right to ask ask it of you. And that's what she's showing when a baron, a woman who's had 10 years of battling infertility volunteers to give birth to a son. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, these stories are, you know, ultimately they're about God and what he does in the lives of people and the redemptive power of the gospel. Um, you know, Judah was a horrible man. And, you know, God stopped him in his tracks. And it it's a it's a huge transformation. And um, you know, David and Abraham, you know, they did awful things. And, you know, the gospel is big and it offers good news and hope to the, you know, Paul said it. He was, the, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. And he had people died because of what he did. Carolyn, um, I don't know if you know this, but you're being very affirming today, just so you know. Well, I hope so. You know, I think these, <laughs> I think some people were afraid when I wrote a book about men, but I'm telling you, the men who have talked to me about reading this book have said, you know, at first I sort of felt like I was losing something. And then this expanse opened up in front of me. And um, I just heard yesterday about a church where the men are reading this book. And, and the pastor said they are just loving it because it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's so affirming. It's not. I don't hate men. I'm married to one. (laughs) (laughs) And in chapter three, I think it is of your book, you talk about the father wound. Would you say more about that? Well, that's what, okay. So in under patriarchy, the linchpin of patriarchy is primogenitor, which means the oldest son is the crown prince of the family. And in the story of of Jacob and his 12 sons, he favors son number 11, and it wreaks havoc in the family, you know, because he's got older brothers, and, um, you know, Judas number four 
but it looks like numbers one, two, and three have dishonored their father and eliminated themselves. So, but Jacob loved Joseph. It never says he loved the others. And I think one of the things that drives Judah into a downward spiral is the father wound because his, his father didn't love his mother and he doesn't really care about the six sons that are credited to her. And I, you know, I think it's, it's a common experience with a lot of men, you know, that they just didn't get from their dads what they needed. And it's, it's a deep, deep wound. And, you know, with him, it just drove him into, you know, wanting to murder Joseph and um, leading his other brothers that in that direction. And then, you know, it leads him into, he, he goes from being a human trafficker to being a John. You know, he solicits the services of a prostitute and doesn't realize who it is. Um but it's you know he's he just falls in the ditch, and you know God uses Tamar to I mean he hits a brick wall with her because he's ready he's going to execute her for something he's done, and he says she is righteous I am not, and our Bibles translate it. He's not as righteous as I am or something like that. But it's not that's not what he's saying. He says, she is righteous. I am not. And it's Hmm. a turning point for him. It's huge. (laughs) Wow, that's that's great. Let, Let me take one more break. Carolyn Custis James is my guest. We'll be back in 90 seconds. James is my guest. She's written a number of books. She's an award-winning author. The book we're chatting about right now is called Maelstrom, Manhood Swept into the Currents of a Changing World. Done some great work on this, Carolyn. Let's talk about the ma- the masculinity of Jesus. Hmm. Well, I don't think he follows the recipe, um, you know, of his culture, um, you know, he doesn't marry, doesn't produce sons. He's, he doesn't have a job, <laughs> you know, he doesn't take up Joseph's job. He's, you know, he shocks his parents when he goes missing. And then he says that in, it's not Joseph's business that he is joining, which a son would do. But it's his father. He said, I, I have to be at, about my father's business. And, you know, he's, he is in a culture where women are marginalized and he engages them in conversation. You know, his disciples um, leave him to go in, uh, to town to get food and um, the Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And he engages her in a deep theological discussion. Um, he mentors 
Mary of Bethany. Uh, some people and I, I agree with them that she was the first one to get his message that he was that he was telling. But he disciples her. She sits at his feet to learn. She struggles to understand what she's been taught. When he doesn't show up in time to save her brother from dying, and she learns to trust him at a deeper level that no matter what happens or how bad things look or what he says and does, the safest course is always to trust him. And when he faces his own crisis, when he faces his own arrest and crucifixion, Mary is the one who comes alongside him and enters into that struggle. And when she anoints him and his disciples talk about the expensive ointment she poured on him, he says, she anointed me for my burial. And, you know, if she did it not understanding what she was doing, it would have been an appalling act of unbelief. But he said, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And one of the things I talk about from Genesis 1 is that God means for his sons and daughters to join forces for his purposes. When he creates them, it says that he looked at them and he commissioned them to rule and subdue over creation for the flourishing of all, not to rule over each other. And it says that he blessed them. And I call them a blessed alliance. And I think Jesus and Mary of Bethany, there's a moment there of a blessed alliance in a very fierce battle. Um, And that's what we're all called to. And Jesus, you know, women engaged with Jesus and he taught Jesus, he taught them and they ministered to him and he accepted their ministry. I mean, that's pastoral ministry, what she did there. Because she's affirming his mission when she anoints him. And, you know, we don't know what to do with that, but, you know, it's pretty clear Jesus was blessed by what she did. And it broke his isolation. So, you know, but, but he, Jesus calls us to a kingdom that is not of this world. And I think we're going to spend our entire lives trying to figure out what that is. But, you know, it's not the United States way of doing things. It's not Europe's way of doing things. There there are things that he calls us to that are so utterly countercultural in every single culture. And I don't know about you, but I'm hungry for that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm hungry for it. And, And I think all of these ugly things that turn up in our own culture ought to propel us to ask more questions and to, and to look for what, what does he want of us and what is this kingdom supposed to be like? It's not of this world. And he wasn't kidding when he said that. Carolyn, when you had mentioned about the, Jesus and his masculinity and not following the traditional ways of married and children and not necessarily uh, followed in his father's footsteps. I I don't know if you 
meant that? Because I, I think Scripture doesn't doesn't Scripture teach us that Jesus was in fact a carpenter? Wasn't there even a reference in Mark that is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James yeah. and Joseph? Yeah. So did did we not he, understand him to be a carpenter? He he undoubtedly learned about that from Joseph that mm-hmm. he he had his own calling and he leaves that. You know, oh, sure. he says, "I don't have any place to lay my head." And other people were, um, you know, the women who followed him were were supporting him um, and his male disciples. So. Um, yeah, he was, you know, there was always the center for him was his father's will. And um, and that's supposed to be the center for all of us, you know, like I said, to know the God who created us to, re- to reflect him and to do his work in the world, um, be his eyes and his ears and his hands and... Um, and Jesus did that, you know, I think of all the people he cared for and, mm-hmm. you know, the, and, and the marginalized, it wasn't, you know, he was, he wasn't, I mean, he would hang out with people that nobody approved of, you know, the tax collectors and prostitutes and, you know, people who were lepers and just, yeah. We need to. We need to. We need to. We need to know Jesus better. Mm-hmm. He always seemed to gravitate to the people on the fringe of society. Yeah. And it's one of the things yeah. I've always loved about him is he he always would head right over to the people that would be the most ignored by the culture. Yeah. 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 And what you find is that there's gold in the margins. You know, the God <laughs> True. I mean, even I think about immigration, and Ruth was one of those who crossed the border. And when she got into Bethlehem, you know, every conversation she has with Boaz is about Mosaic law, and she has a different perspective. You know, and and when I write about her, I said she's she's. The law looks different from the hungry side, and the law is written to help those who are on the hungry side. And, you know, usually we, the laws are interpreted by people who are on the other side, you know, who want to safeguard their wealth or their privilege mm-hmm. or their power. And when you read the law, it's, you know, the gleaning law was was it was calling landowners and their workers to sacrifice because people were hungry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ruth didn't want to take home scraps to Naomi. She wanted to feed her. And so she asked if she could glean where there, not where there were scraps, but where they had just cut the grain down. Mm-hmm. And she took the mother load home to her mother and while she took home twenty nine pounds. You know, that's not scraps. No, it sure isn't. So <laughs> Carolyn, the book uh, really sounds like it's written for men, but it's not. It's written for both men and women to read, right? Well, I would hope all my books are written for both. 
Of course. Um, of course. But yeah. the title is yeah. Maelstrom, Manhood Swept into the Currents of a Changing World. I just want to let yeah. my listeners know that it's not just for men. Right, right. And I think, you know, it, I, when I started writing it, there was just, there was a lot, and it's still happening, of just how men are struggling with, you know, now women are in the workplace, and women are, we've got a female vice president, and men feel like they're losing something. And, you know, Scripture calls us together to do God, you know, to to build God's kingdom. And, um, and, and like I say in Maelstrom, men, men cannot lose what God has given them. Yeah. That's just, That's it cannot be. Carolyn, thank you so much for taking the time to do the show and have a blessed weekend. Thank you for the privilege. I enjoyed talking to you again. Thank you so much. Carolyn Custis James has been my guest if you head over to her website, Carolyn Custis James, you can learn all about the books she's written. There's some wonderful things in there, some great books on Ruth. And the book that we chatted about just now is called Maelstrom, Manhood Swept into the Currents of a Changing World. We're going to talk a little bit more about Ruth in the second hour. First, we're going to do uh, Words of the Wise. I'm looking forward to chatting with David. And then my friend Walker Humphreys is going to be joining me. On Fridays with Friends, he's memorized. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.